HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's that time of the week and that time of the day. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Des Moines and Des Moines Waterworks. Um, those of you who were listening or tuned into uh, last week's episode with Bill Stowe, who manages the Des Moines Waterworks, we talked a lot about local politics. And um, today, my guest is the very distinguished uh, reporter, Richard Manning. Um, Richard is the author of 10 books, including Go Wild, Free Your Body and Mind from the Afflictions of Civilization, which came out in June of 2014. We're going to have to talk about that for a second, Richard. Um, But he has also worked as a consultant on agriculture, poverty, and the environment uh, with the McKnight Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. And he is a freelance magazine writer with essays and articles published in Harper's Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, Wired, Men's Journal on Earth, the Los Angeles Times, American Scholar, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, the New York Times, Audubon Outside, E-Magazine, High Country News, and Northern Lights. Talk about making me feel inadequate, Richard. Thanks a lot, buddy. No. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, thank, thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Now, you wrote a piece. Um, I was like, I saw the title of your piece, and I didn't really realize how much you focused on that whole Des Moines Waterworks story. But you wrote a piece called Corn, uh, sorry, The Trouble with Iowa, Corn, Corruption, and the Presidential Caucuses. Um, and that caught my eye, and I was just like totally, um, totally excited by the whole uh, exploration of um, of how politics uh, or how how big agriculture and corn and specifically uh, has an impact on our political process. But before we get into that, and because that's the cover story of Harper's for February, right? Yes. Well done, sir. Before we get into that, you have to tell me first, how do I free my body and mind from the afflictions of civilization? I need to know. Well, it turns out it's relatively easy. It's a lot easier than we make it out to be. And all we have to do is look how humans lived before agriculture came along. 
the clue to that, and, and, and I'm, the, the, that title is a takeoff on, on a long-standing area of research called diseases of civilization. Uh-huh. Basically, what it says is, you know, we got sick as soon as we started eating agricultural foods. Um, people before agriculture came along were taller. Uh, they lived longer as, as long as they weren't killed by a grizzly bear or something like that. And, and they didn't have cancer, and that's really well documented. Huh. Um, so, so the whole idea is, and this is, this is a kind of a robust area that people look at now of, 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 of evolutionary medicine, as just simply saying, well, okay, what do we need to do to learn from those people the way they lived? And it turns out that it, you probably don't eat anything industrial agriculture does, and you get healthy by moving around quite a bit and running and walking, and you, you'll be a lot healthier. I, that seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I personally do not eat processed foods unless I really, really have to. Um, yeah. And I certainly move my body enough. Um, okay, so let's go back to the trouble with Iowa, corn corruption, and the presidential caucuses. Okay, first of all, what what, tempted to, what prompted you to write the piece? Were you were you overwhelmed by uh, by the plight of Des Moines uh, people who cannot possibly drink their water, or was it more the sort of the corn and renewable fuels side of things that uh, that caught your attention about that? Um, and well, it's all, that story. it's all of it, really. But but um, it's a dirty little secret is Des Moines doesn't have much to do with it. As I as, as doing what I do as as a guy who writes about industrial agriculture, I can go anywhere where industrial agriculture exists and do this story because yeah. it's the same set of problems are going to exist no matter where. What what drew me to this is is kind of that that web of problems that come together and they really are the foundation of our nation's leading problems. So, yeah, we can start with obesity and health care costs and things like that, but we can almost go immediately to the environment, to global warming, to yeah. income inequality, to immigration. All those things cluster together around industrial ag, and the numbers are there. They're very clear. And so as I thought about that, I said, wait a minute. Now, we're in a presidential election year, yeah. and this is when we talk about our nation's leading problems. Presumably, that's what we do. That's what this process is for. And in fact, it starts in Iowa, which is kind of ground zero for these problems. And so I said, well, you know, that's where we're going to talk about these problems. Want to bet? Yeah, and right. So, <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, no. <laughs> so, so I figured I would go to Iowa and write down what everybody is not saying. Uh-huh. And, that, and that, that was essentially the assignment. Yeah. Well, it was a fascinating article. I mean, for people who haven't been following the Des Moines Water Works issue and who don't um, regularly tune into what is happening in agriculture, um, large-scale agriculture in this country, I'm sure it was quite the eye-opener. Um, I actually had been in Iowa, in Des Moines, um, not so long ago, and um, was just I mean, I'd been talking about this problem with Tom Philpot from Mother Jones for over a year because um, Tom's done a bunch of stories on it. But uh, but then I actually went to Des Moines and um, the smell from the river and the smell and taste of the water as it came out of the tap were just so horrible. I mean, I, I really was just stunned by it. Um, but uh, to go on, you know, to, to go on a little further, like, were you surprised that Ted Cruz, for example, um, did, you know, came out against, essentially against renewable fuel standards? Um, do you think he did not realize that Iowa is ground zero for renewable fuels in terms of the corn and uh, soy production there? 
Yeah, I, I, I was curious about that. I was not particularly yeah. surprised because it's completely in line with conservative principles. I mean, it, it is the best example we have of, 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 of the government intervening in, in a free market. Yeah. And it, it literally dictating that we have to buy 10% of our gasoline as ethanol. Right. 10, 15%, whatever the number is now. And, and so it was not surprising to see him take a, what looks like a principled stand on that. And a lot of people try to explain it by, well, he's in the pocket of the oil guys. And if you look at the industry, the, the oil guys also own ethanol plants. Yes, so of course they do. It, yes, so it, it's nonsense to talk about that in these terms. Well, but it, it was fascinating to watch how it played out, and I think what it what we got out of the deal was an indicator of the larger picture in Republican politics this year, that the, the kind of the business interest country club Republicans, who are very much in control in Iowa, by the way, yeah, um, um, have lost control of their their people, and we, and it's going to be interesting to see if they're able to rein them in, and Cruz kind of capitalized on that. So it, it's a it's a pretty good indicator, but well, I, in, in the long run, I'm not sure it's going to have all that much to do with ethanol. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. I just was surprised that he was able to um, to pull off that first place finish uh, in Iowa, given that he did not, um, as somebody else said, I think it was Bill Stowe said, he did not kiss the ring, <laughs> big corn. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that guy yeah was it really, really was funny. surprising, and especially to see the, the, the establishment come out against him so strongly, as both Grassley and, and, and Branstad did, the governor and the senator. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess, you know, I guess the evangelical Trump's corn for some reason in Iowa in terms of sort of the, the day-to-day average guy there. Um, you mentioned that there uh, – one of the things that you said in your piece, which I thought was interesting um, – was that uh, you felt that there were some relatively easy fixes for controlling the agricultural pollution that um, is so prevalent across the United States, not just in Iowa, but certainly in any uh, big corn or soy production uh, area. And um, and so if people just, uh, you know, restored their wetlands and, and grew a few different crops or maybe some cover crops, uh, this would this would likely go away to a great extent. But, I mean, if it's that easy, how come nobody's doing it? Well, it is that easy, and, and, and in fact, the Iowa State University has worked out the program. and yeah. They've they, they field-tested it. They said, here, we can do this, and we can do this. We, so if we do 10 acres of wetland, we can treat 1,000 acres of industrial corn. So mm. you know, what's that, 1%? Yeah. And so if they set aside 1% of their landscape or even 5% or 10% of their landscape, and, and then they have all these knock-on benefits from wildlife habitat and stuff like that. But they don't do it because it's industrial agriculture, and they farm every square inch on a single crop or two crops. Soybeans and corn take up 23 of 24 million acres. And they don't do it because the market system rewards them for not doing it. And, And the odd part is we're subsidizing this. Okay, why don't we subsidize some better practices out there? And, in fact, we could do that with policy. But we just don't do it. No, we don't do it. And, you know, I've been um, I'm actually writing a book about the industrial uh, production of meat around the world. And one of the things that's been so interesting to me is to sort of compare and contrast what we put into our farm bill versus what the common agricultural policy is in the uh, European Union. I'm sure you've read about this as well. And so their their farmers are given subsidies for doing things correctly, like restoring wetlands, like, uh, you know, crop rotations or, you know, any other measures that they can take 
take that make them better stewards of the land. And somehow 28 member countries have been able to ratify that. <laughs> and yet we cannot get the, you know, any state in this country to do the same thing. We certainly can't get the, um, the you know, Department of Agriculture or whoever, you know, the people involved in writing the farm bill uh, to write those uh, regulations. And I thought that I, I just find that incredible. So do you think that the farming community would be receptive uh, to making those changes if, for example, they were given subsidies uh, based on uh, wetland restoration or or growing certain cover crops versus just doing what they're doing now, which is getting yeah, those we, crop we need to be kind of careful with that word community because that, 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 that brings up that kind of idea of a functioning relationship, a set of <laughs> give and take and things like that. And, and you know, Industrial ag is nothing like that. It's like right. a corporation. It's not a community at all. And then there are people who do what they're told in that system. And then against that, there are people who do alternative ag and people who want to genuinely resurrect community by food. And those, those people are certainly receptive to doing those things. And then there's kind of a middle ground of people you can break loose. And there are farmers who want to do the right thing. They don't realize how bad it is, and they're in denial about it. So... Yeah, well, people could do that, and they'll do do with if we got the policy right. I think we could make these changes relatively quickly, and certainly in things like grass-fed beef, for instance. I'm a great advocate of grass-fed beef. I think we can do a whole lot with grass-fed beef and dairy. Well, Wisconsin is the dairy state, and they've got about a third of their dairy production now is in grass-fed. So they, this can happen. This can grow, and people actually like that. That not only people who buy it, but the farmers like having livestock around again. So yeah. there are things in here to bring these incentives back and stop this nonsense of concentration camps for animals and then do something traditionally. Yeah. But, I mean, the people who write the farm bill, and that would be the agricultural committees in the House and the Senate, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, what... You know where 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 do they fit into that idea? Like, how do farmers um, are farmers able to communicate to them that they would like to actually maybe have some livestock on their land, or that they would be willing to do cover crops if somebody made it worth their while, or you know somehow the subsidies and the insurances that we we don't see so many subsidies as we do crop insurances now. I think, but um, you know. Is there an interface that you're aware of between farmers who want to change the, the status quo and, and the people who are actually writing these bills, who I think are firmly in the pocket of uh, large-scale agriculture? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's exactly that. That's the problem. And so the people who want to do um, alternative agriculture or, or do some better practices in some ways or make some compromise with people like the Des Moines Waterworks are simply ostracized. They're shouted down yeah. in, in that place. But we have to look at the structure of farming to understand why that's true. And while there are thousands and thousands of farmers in Iowa, the the overwhelming majority of the actual production is done by a few few farms. Mm-hmm. So it's that it it looks very much like the rest of the United States right now that 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 we have concentrated wealth in a few hands, and that's true of farming as well. And it's very true of farming production. So those are the voices that are heard. The guys who, who own the multi-million dollar farms, billion dollar farms, and then, yeah. you know, the, the handful of them, they meet together in a room with, with uh, the, 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 the people like ADM and Cargill and so forth. And that industry is the one that speaks through the lobbyists to, to Washington, and that's the view that's going to come out. 
Yeah. I often think that the trade groups uh, that represent certainly in the meat uh, division of agriculture, um, you know, trade groups like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association or the, you know, the National Chicken Council, I don't feel like they necessarily um, always represent what is best for their constituents, which I think is an interesting um, sort of conundrum about trade groups. I mean, people are, every farm has to like fork out a few cents per head or whatever for the checkoff program, which is to, you know, all about marketing and essentially about lobbying. And yet, uh, you know, those, their own best interests are not always what seem to be uh, communicated. What do you think about the checkoff programs? Yeah, those programs are completely captive of the industry, and certainly the trade groups themselves are. And, and, and in fact, there are more trade groups than there used to be. And the reason for that is, you know, just a couple years ago, the industry groups got together, people like Cargill, but also Coca-Cola, for instance. Yeah. And those, that industry joined together. They put together $126 million bucks. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of money. And, yeah. and the first thing they did was found 14 different food industry front groups. And they have names like the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. Yeah. Well, well, come on. That's just a front for industry. They paid for it. And it's just one of the tactics that goes on. And you know, it's the tactic that's called AstroTurf in every other place. And it's the way we do a grassroots movement. We pay for it. And that's what's happening. Wow. I didn't realize that. that. That's news to me. That's an amazing story. Um, let's talk for a second about Bill Stowe, just because we were, you know, discussing Des Moines. What, what do you think are the chances of him actually getting uh, this lawsuit jammed through the court system? I mean, he and you have, have both made the point that, you know, they could tie this up for many, many years um, with uh, discovery and appeals and this and that. Um, do you think that he will eventually prevail, or, or is it just going to be a long, stalling game? I don't know. The, the, the vagaries of the courts made even more vague over the weekend. Um, but um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's going to be really interesting. And I can tell you this, and I found out about the Des Moines, Iowa waterworks suit when I was floating a river in Montana on a raft trip with one of the nation's leading environmentalists. Really? Who has nothing to do with him in Iowa. And yeah. he said, you got to know about this suit. Well, the thing is that this problem exists all over the nation. Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. And environmentalists know this. And so it's a problem, for instance, in Idaho. It's a problem in the Rocky Mountains, uh, northern Rockies. It's problems in the south. But only in Iowa do they have that uh, drainage system that Bill Stowe talked about quite a bit in mm-hmm. the story. And that drainage system gives them a pipe to work with. So that's kind of a legal point that really can be the thin edge of the wedge here that breaks this loose. And it really needs to be broken loose because it really is our nation's leading environmental water quality problem right now. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. so, so this lawsuit really can bust it loose. The alternative is to go back and clean up the Clean Water Act. And, and so in the Clean Water Act dates in 1972, and nobody really foresaw this, and so they left some loose language in there that allowed the farmers to walk right on through, yeah. which they've, they've opened up that, that loophole with subsequent court decisions. And so we say, well, let's go back through legislative action and clean up the Clean Water Act and, 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 and take care of this problem. Well, the fact is that given the current political climate, we couldn't even pass the Clean Water Act as oh, we no. did it in 1972. So our, we gotta, that's a sobering thing, that our nation's leading environmental legislation is not possible in today's political climate. 
Yeah. So we better hope the courts can bust this loose. Well, it was. I was reading today uh, until my phone died on the way. Um, but uh, I follow the meat trades very carefully, and so uh, Gina McCarthy is being grilled uh, on Capitol Hill today uh, by the Agricultural Committee. I think it was for the Senate, um, and they are telling her that uh, the EPA actually um, broke the law by lobbying via Twitter for Waters of the United States for that regulation to be passed, which, you know, they, the Senate and the House tried very hard to um, squelch that. Um, but, you know, it seems like the EPA literally has no, no teeth and no, no um, you know, no allies in Congress at this point. What do you think about that? Yeah, the EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency is now being castigated for protecting the environment. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. that's fairly interesting, um, but that's where we are. And, yeah. and and the EPA has reacted has has had a lot of federal agencies by really becoming like abused children after a while. They're all they're, they're long tailed cats in a room full of rocking chairs. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. They, and 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 it, it's it's almost a, a, a neurosis that's coming out, and they're afraid to do anything, and yes. or unable to do anything because the courts tie them in knots, and so they retreat into this kind of bureaucratic nothingness, this inaction, and everybody's tied knots over the issue. So yeah, I do fault EPA on this, but the political climate is a big deal, and in fact, you know they they have been under a lot of fire. Yeah, they have. And I, I, very unjustly, as far as I can tell, I mean, they are just trying to do what they were set up to do. Um, I, I think this also speaks to the, um, the quote unquote, voluntary phasing out of antibiotics in the meat system, um, you know, which, again, was something that uh, that even President Obama has signed, you know, directives about this. And yet nothing has happened. And if, if anything, our use of antibiotics has accelerated. Uh, rather than uh, phased out. And I think, again, this is the FDA completely, you know, acting like a room full of long-tailed cats. <laughs> i got to remember yeah. that. That's an awesome analogy. Um, so um, Iowa doesn't really have to go back to the drinking water thing. Iowa doesn't have that many voters, um, after all. I mean, the state has a lot more pigs, as you point out in your piece, than they do people. What was it, like 21 million hogs and 3 million people, something like that? Yeah. So why aren't the voters, uh, you know, why are they so, um, what is the word I'm looking for, compliant with large-scale agriculture? I mean, you would think that a big urban center like Des Moines would be able to vote for legislation or legislators uh, that would support their need for clean water. What, what's the story behind that? Well, I, I think part of it is the, the, the frog in boiling water analogy. That you know, we're about to cook this frog in boiling water. We just haven't quite reached that temperature point where the frog objects to this, and, <laughs> and you know, and you turn it up a degree at a time. And, and that's the case with nitrate pollution. That this has really increased pretty dramatically, but over the course of about five or ten years. Yeah. And so people are slowly becoming aware that they're paying for it, and it hasn't made an issue. But the other side of this is that people in Iowa are really reticent to ignite any sort of battle that will pit urban areas against rural areas. And, and, and it, both, both urban and rural are reticent to do that because all hell breaks loose when that happens. I mean, things really come unglued, and people in Iowa kind of don't like all hell to break loose. 
Um, and so the farmers kind of the farm interest, I should say, press that uh, that 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 good nature of the place by just taking it as far as they possibly can to see how much they can bring out of it. What will make it more pronounced, and I think make the battle happen, are things like what happened. In, when we when we talk about Flint, Michigan, as being an analogy to this, and it clearly is. I mean, this is a big deal, but. We forget that a year ago in Toledo, Ohio, people couldn't drink their water. That's it was right. literally poisonous that day, and actually two years ago now. Yeah. And those kinds of outbreaks will happen a lot more often, those toxic alcohol blooms that actually poison the water system instantly. That's going to focus a lot of attention, just as we didn't think about Flint, Michigan, a couple months ago. Now it's front and center, and people are pretty, out, pretty outraged by it. Same safe set of dynamics. This will boil over. It's going to take some time. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is, uh, I think it's because this is agriculture and it's not um, sort of such a deliberate uh, cost-saving measure, which is, you know, what the Flint, Michigan thing was. Um, this is a cost-saving measure, but it's sort of hidden from the public in that sense, I think. Um, I don't know. I, I I find the Flint thing... It's so it's so criminal that it's just kind of like you know this is this is criminal in a different way and I'm not <laughs> I'm not going yeah. to spend a lot of time thinking about you know parsing that sentence but um, you know you you talk a little bit about Tom Vilsack because um, he was a former governor of Iowa and now of course he's our um, agricultural secretary and you mentioned that he tried to enact a number of reforms um, once he became the secretary of, of agriculture. What were I mean? The only thing I remember is know your farmer, know your food, and I don't I don't even remember what reforms he uh, introduced. Can you remind us about what those were and tell us what happened? Sure, sure, <laughs> and, and and it was key to, to to really what's going on in the meat industry nationwide. And we have to go back pre Iowa, and this really started in the chicken industry with mm-hmm. Tyson Foods. Mm-hmm. Tyson's really the leading player in this, and, and they were actually now down to five corporations and control essentially all the chicken and, and pork in the United States. Yeah. And the, the other big one and big player in Iowa was Smithfield, and yeah. they basically tried to, to regiment the meat production system in CAFOs very much like Tyson did with chickens right. initially. Um, that was going on for a couple of decades, really, and there was a guy named Tom Miller, who was the Attorney General of Iowa, who took him on and essentially said, you cannot, and, and the, the term that was used for me was serfs, as in slaves. Yeah. You can't turn our pig farmers into slaves in this country, and, and it was basically antitrust stuff. So uh, during 2008 election, um, President Obama listened to this and actually was able to take the Iowa caucuses as a result of understanding this problem. Uh-huh. And and then appointed Tom Vilsack, Ag Secretary, and said, go ahead and, and implement this nationwide. Do these reforms that, that Tom Miller's tried to do in Iowa nationwide. And he set out to do that with some antitrust legislation that, and tools that they have in the Agriculture Department. And over the course of a year or so, the, the ag industry lobby kicked in and, and beat them. Soundly, wow. and with with a very expensive campaign that did exactly what we were talking about earlier with astroturf lobbying groups and front groups and mm-hmm. so forth, and essentially those 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 um, reforms were shot down. Huh? I in really, Congress, yeah, I'm very curious about this antitrust thing because I don't understand why. You know, I mean, you've just explained it, but it's just it's stunning to me 
that we don't have antitrust cases up against these big corporations. It just doesn't, I mean, vertical integration just doesn't make sense to me in the context of the Sherman Act. You know what I mean? It's just like, no, you're not supposed to be allowed to own every single step of production from putting the seeds in the ground to, you know, making the McNuggets for whatever. That just doesn't seem quite right to me. Oh, you know what, Richard? We have to take a short break and have a sponsor drop now. And then we'll be right back to talk more about the Chinese and Smithfield and so on. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back with Richard Manning, author of um, What's Wrong with Iowa. And the break song today is Walking Like a Cowboy by Taxstar. We will be right back. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking today with Richard Manning, uh, a journalist who uh, just his uh, cover story on Harper's Magazine is The Trouble in Iowa, uh, Corn, Corruption, and the Presidential Caucuses. And we're we're sort of moving along um, to talk a little bit about another topic that makes my milk hot and that is um when we we were talking earlier about smithfield in iowa and so smithfield as many listeners to this program know um sold themselves to a chinese company called Shuanghui um a few years ago and then it was sold again and then it turns out that it's really i think essentially owned by the chinese government but it's a it's a complex story anyway they sold along with the pigs they sold a big chunk of agricultural assets right like including the land and the water because it's a vertically integrated company. Um, so now the Chinese are best friends with Governor Brandstad, as you point out in your article. Um, he didn't want people to be talking about how bad the Chinese are. He wants people to be talking about how good the Chinese are. Did you feel like Governor Brandstad is open to selling more agricultural assets? And, and who else made out uh, politically from that sale, do you think? Yeah, it, we got to back up from pigs a little bit okay. to, to understand why that, that makes perfect sense, why the governor would say that. And then really since the time of the Civil War, the business of the Corn Belt has to make, been to make corn disappear. And, and they don't care how they do it. They just understand that nobody eats corn. Yeah. And so and the, the interesting part is our leading agricultural product in the nation is not food. And so as a result mm-hmm. of that, they have to convert it to something else that people will buy. And then the leading way of doing that is pigs. And so what they gained was those markets for pigs in China by export. But so, but everybody benefits because more corn disappears as a result. And that's the whole bottom line. Uh, the bigger story in here is ethanol and how ethanol makes corn disappear. But all those things go together. And they, and they really don't care how it disappears as long as it does. So be it corn syrup or pigs to China or ethanol, uh, corn price of corn goes up when it disappears. Yeah, 
That's right. So, um, so do you, I mean, do you feel like these sales, I mean, I find it very alarming that, uh, that we're selling off agricultural assets. Do you see that as a, as a problem going forward in terms well, of it, food it, production, it, water? Yeah. The, the, the bigger problem here is, is, is what it, it's symptomatic of something larger mm-hmm. that we need to think about here. And it, this is even more sobering than losing agricultural assets. And, and, and about 15 and 20 years ago, the large question in international agriculture was, who will feed China? Right. We understood that they had this enormous population and that they needed to be fed. And people hemmed and hawed about that. And I mean, finally said, for a while, it was China will feed China, because they, they really increased yield massively, and they've, they, they produced a lot of food. Yep. But then we started seeing them showing up in places like South Africa, Brazil, yeah. um, Indonesia, certainly, and, and making huge investments and huge changes in agricultural situation there. And so that, then the answer became, well, the developing world will feed China. But in recent years, and I've seen this wherever I've gone in agriculture in the United States. For instance, I did a story on dairy in southern Idaho, mm-hmm. and it turns out 95% of the milk was going to China. Wow. There. And, and, and I scratched my head about that. And why are they showing up in the United States? It's much more expensive. Labor costs, things like that. Yeah. Land. And, well, if you think about it, it's predictability. And so industrial ag must have a very stable system to operate in. And in things like irrigation and supplies of fertilizer and roads for transport, but above all, politics. So you've got to have a political system that can guarantee they can do business. And we do that in this country better than anybody in the world yeah. because the farm lobby is so strong and people like Terry Branstad, the governor of Iowa, are so compliant to the industrial interest that they can take care of what economists call the institutions and norms, which that means is lobbying, mm-hmm. to get get control of a landscape. So what the Chinese are buying is control, political control that we can deliver. Yikes. That is scary, Richard. I really have to think that one through. (laughs) And that's scary to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> no, it's really, I mean, I personally, I think about what's going to happen when we start running out of water. And, you know, the Chinese, as I've recently discovered, did a, um, they did a, uh, you know, an environmental assessment of China. And they uh, found that they had polluted 60% of their groundwater supplies. And so when I see them buying up agricultural assets in the United States and elsewhere, I see them buying our water. And yeah, I and I yeah. see that in the future, you know, uh, that there's going to be a lot of conflict over that. But what you've just said makes it clear to me that it, it, it really is they've bought politicians who will allow them to suck that water out of our country. And I mean, I don't mean to sound xenophobic because I'm not at all. I mean, I think foreign trade is great, but I don't think selling off agricultural assets is great. And I definitely don't think selling off political influence is at all great. So yeah, that's a, it's a good thing for me to think about. Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit more about, uh, before we have to go, before about the, about the Democratic side of the, uh, of the caucuses. Um, what, 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 what's your sense of, of how the Democrats are approaching some of these you know, major problems, environmental problems, obesity problems? I, I never hear uh, Bernie or Hillary talking about um, you know, sort of how this very 
complex set of problems really just arises essentially from industrial agriculture. Do you have any sense at all that that's going to be on the agenda or that they no. even want it to be? No, I don't think it will be at all. Um, and, 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 but I think that some of the top-end problems that, uh, that go into this problem will be on the agenda. And so if we talk about income inequality, for instance, we're starting to get at this issue. If we're talking about control, the, the control of especially the Koch empire, yeah. the Koch empire looms large in every bit of this that I've been talking about. Yes. And if we're trying to break that system, then that that's really needs to happen. But we have to go back to the fact that, for instance, Hillary Clinton favored the renewable fuel standard, corn ethanol, by writing an op-ed that called it a clean fuel. Right. It is no such thing. It right. is absolutely filthy. And it is filthy from one end to the other. But a lot of people buy into that argument. And we've got to get over that. Um, and right. so, no, these issues, and, and, and in democratic politics, these, they have to play to urban um, centers. That's the way it works. And so these issues really aren't front and center in urban politics until we start talking about our food supply and the quality of it. Right. Um, and, and, but we'll, we'll get there. So it's, it's like one thing at a time. And uh, so some of the things that I'll be talking about on the Democratic side will help eventually. But farming is usually last on the list for reform just because it, it's so rural-based. Yeah. Although you do think that with more and more people on the coasts and in urban centers, you know, having this um, newfound interest in where their food comes from, um, you know, that they would be a little more tied into the political process around it. But I don't I don't really see that happening in terms of voting um, or even the candidates that are advanced by either party. Um, it really seems like there's kind of a blackout on it. So um I'm sure you've heard about this. Um, I interviewed uh, Ricardo Salvador a few months ago um, and, you know, from the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, he and, and, and uh, several other sort of influential food writers, Michael Paul and Mark Bittman, Olivia DeShooter, uh, put together this big white paper about uh, reforming the food system and creating a food, a new food policy. Um, and then they, you know, they rolled out this sort of uh, marketing initiative around that called the Plate of the Union. Did you hear about that? Did that, you know, has that gotten any traction anywhere? I'm, I'm not hearing about it anywhere, literally, since it happened. So I'm curious whether it had crossed your radar. Yeah, I've seen a little bit about it, and the problem is that I, I, I don't think that they get into the intricacies of this, which we need to do. So, for instance, uh, one of the bromides in this, this whole discussion is, well, we'll be all the better off if we eat a more plant-based diet. Come on, we're eating soybeans and corn now, directly or indirectly, and it's not doing us any good <laughs> in, by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah. and and in far part of the solution relies on things like grass-fed beef. So we need to be far more. And, and I think they'd agree with that, but they're trying to market something. But uh, let me let me try to. Uh, this is something I haven't been thinking about a lot, but I haven't talked about it at all. So you'll be the first to hear this. Okay, good. Um, there's <laughs> an Achilles heel to this whole system. It's, yeah. and, and, and it's an incredible lever that nobody has played yet, but the groundwork has been laid to play it, and it is anti antibiotics. And that the, the routine feeding of antibiotics is killing something. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. Antibiotic resistance in this country is killing 23,000 people a year yeah. dead. 
And, uh, and and this that's that comes from the Centers for Disease Control, yep. not some lobbying group. And the studies are there, and it's an enormous problem. And everybody understands it's an enormous problem. We need to understand more. It's an enormous problem. The reason I focus on this is that this is not something that the feedlot system can adjust. What I mean by that is that antibiotics are absolutely essential to the feedlot system that if we took them away tomorrow from these guys, they'd be out of business. That's a lever. And that's something that urban audiences understand, and, and that's something the medical community understands, and it's something that needs to be played out a lot more because it really is the way to unwind this system with one thread. You pull on this one thread and everything falls down. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you there because <clears throat> the, um, in Europe, the, uh, the use, the routine use of antibiotics as a growth promotant uh, was phased out, um, in many cases, like as far back as the 90s. Um, and they actually, uh, have not, they have very intensive, they've just, their hog farming is just as intensive in Denmark and the Netherlands, for example, as it is in Iowa. And they have successfully removed antibiotics from their system as a growth promotant and disease prevention. And they have instituted instead uh, far better hygiene, uh, probiotics, vaccines, and the like. So it actually can be done. Um, the, the, what's interesting is that the American um, system, the American uh, companies involved, really do not, they don't want to make the investment that it takes because there is a certain amount of investment involved. And I think that that speaks to the serfdom that you referred to earlier uh, in the, in the segment and also in your article of how uh, the Tysonization, the chickenization of hog farming and of, of over, of meat production, you know, in those two categories um, has become a system of, of contract farmers who don't really have any control over what they're doing. So I, I will, I mean, I agree with you that the antibiotics thing really needs to be addressed. And in fact, if a country, I mean, this is something I've thought about. If there were another country that, that came into this, into the United States and mowed down 23,000 citizens, there would be a war. <laughs> you know, I mean, like you just, you know, but everybody just accepts it as status quo. So, I mean, there, there's my two cents on that. I'll send you a copy of my book. Um, I, we're almost, <laughs> Almost out of time, so I just want to go um, and talk a little bit about sort of what I see. You know, remember how Hillary used to say there was a vast right wing conspiracy about you know who knows what, pretty much everything. And I, I love Hillary Clinton, so don't get me wrong. But um, but uh, I think I do feel like that there, if the media were willing to address these issues instead of just saying the poster child of obesity or the poster child of what of I don't know whatever else you know. They're not. The media never addresses the political corruption or um, the sort of the, the the really nitty gritty issues around industrialized agriculture. Why do you think that is? Is it because of who owns newspapers or who's supporting newspapers or or you know media groups? Like, why is the media so freaking silent? Why are you the only guy, for example, or one of the few people? that actually says what's going on. I mean, I thought your article was fantastic. I loved the, the tone of it. It was, made me laugh. I mean, because it was sort of like outrage and, and incredulous at the same time. <laughs> really, really good. <laughs> Highly recommend it to everyone. <laughs> but why do you think there's less... Why do you think the media is so silent on the subject of why we're so fat? It's not that we're fat. It's why we're so fat. Why are we fat? Because we eat this. Why do we eat this? Because... You know, as you point out, these guys are owning politicians. Why is that not more 
of a subject that comes up in regular mainstream media. I don't get it. What do you think the answer is? Yeah, we need to stop, stop talking about newspapers as you did early on. They're all dead, and and that's part of what's going on here. But and but then you, you can talk things like Fox News and say, yeah, conspiracy. I mean, good God, yeah. it's part of it. They're linked in, and the ties are direct, and and we can get there. But I think part of, part of the problem is, first of all, that, that people don't understand it, and and, and and they don't take the time to understand what's really going on. And they especially buy into that mythology of the American farmer. You know, there's that young yeah. farmer standing in his field, and that's that's such uh, such a compelling image to the American people that that you know, TV reporters and so forth can't help but serve it up. But uh, the, the bigger issue here, I think, is uncertainty, and and, and there shouldn't be a lot of uncertainty here. But but there's this long-standing tradition in in the mainstream press, the liberal press especially, that we're going to be fair and we're going to report both sides and all that kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> well, I got over that a long time ago. That there, there's there's a lot of nonsense out there being reported, and you got to make some judgments, and you got to simply say, I'm not going to talk to both of these guys. I'm going to say, look, here, you know, here's what's obvious, but. Where that especially comes into play in issues like nutrition, where you can you can find all of these dueling studies all over the map. Yeah, and that people will there are conflicting studies. There's advice that we ought to eat margarine from 50 years ago, which is one of the more damaging things we ever did. Yeah, to yeah. People, their advice for low-fat diets, which was one of the most damaging things we ever did to people. That kind of uncertainty can be ratcheted up by the right wing. They've gotten very good at playing on uncertainty. Look how they did it in global warming. Yes. So a reasonable scientific discussion gets trashed in the public commentary. And as part of that $126 million campaign I talked about earlier by the industry, one of the things they did was hire bloggers. And they just hired people to go write blogs and sow confusion. Wow. And so... Uh, inexpert advice out there wherever you went to contribute to the Tower of Babel. And that's where we are on this issue. We live in a Tower of Babel. And that's what the industry wants, because as long as you have that level of uncertainty, no one can do anything. And we can't do anything to threaten the status quo. And the status quo happens to be very good for these guys. So if we can tie the system in knots and prevent um, affirmative, definitive reporting on these things, great, on they go. Yeah, yeah, and that is exactly what's happening. It's just amazing. And then also there's the whole corruption of science, uh, which is another topic that you and I can talk about at another well, occasion. Yeah. But yeah, like the fact that they, when you talk about conflicting studies, is who's paying for who, which study. I mean, Marion Nessel, um, you know, the, the professor at NYU started the Food Studies Program, has a fantastic thing on her on her website right now, Food Politics. And she, she, gets, uh, she gets a lot of studies and she reads to see who paid for which ones. And then she aggregates them and says, you know, and then makes a comment about them and shows and shows the corrupt, you know, the essentially the corruption of the study. So um, if you haven't been following that, it's really it's a fun thing. To, <laughs> it's yep. definitely fun uh, and, to and it's right down to Coca-Cola paying for it. Oh, yeah. Actually paying for the scientists to, to corrupt the studies. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, on that note, unfortunately, we must leave it. Richard, thank you so, so much for joining me. This is a very thought provoking subject or 
discussion for me. I totally enjoyed it. And um, I hope you will uh, join me again at a future time and keep me posted about um, what you're doing and what you're working on. I, I wanted to talk about your Bakken article, which I know was a couple of years ago about the fracking in North Dakota, but uh, maybe we can do that some other time. So um, thanks for joining me today. Thank you to my sponsor, uh, Whole Foods Market. We love you. And um, thanks, as always, to my engineer, Jack Kinsley. We'll see you next week. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.